<clears throat> Turn, please, to Mark in chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, I want to read verses 1 through 11 and then pick up again in verse 17. Mark chapter 14. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now to come to your word, I pray that it would work deep within us, have its perfect work in us. Your word is, you say, a living word. It's alive. And so I pray that it, it goes deep within our hearts. I pray, Father, that it exposes there uh, any unbelief or a lack of love, devotion for you. And I pray then in its work, it would then replace any unbelief with faith and any lack of devotion with a deep, deep love for you. So, Father, I pray you would work that in us uh, even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume, which could have been sold for more than a year's wage and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. When they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. When he took the cup, then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. They all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, we come along a passage like this, and we have these over and over again. In, in the Gospels, in fact, in this Gospel of Mark, when we come uh, upon a passage like this, it's a narrative passage. It's, it's an event, something that happened. It's a record of events. And so we have to begin by asking what happened, and then we have to ask the question, why is it here? Of all the things that could be in the Bible, of all the things that Jesus did and said, why this in particular? Why this particular incident? Why is it here? That is to say, what message is there really here? We're not trying to decode this thing. It's not some sort of Bible code we have to, we have to work at and, and get the hidden message. 
not looking for a hidden message. We're looking for the message. We're looking for what God is communicating to us through this particular incident uh, in the life of Jesus. And as we look at these verses, especially the first 11 verses that I read, uh, we find a couple of things. Um, not unlike Mark, but he, how he writes, it's, it's what we call a sandwich kind of passage. Because verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 form the two pieces of bread, and then verses 3 through 8 is the meat. Because Mark starts out talking about one thing, which he ends up talking about, that is the plot to kill Jesus and the betrayal. But in the middle, there's something. And he sort of squeezes in there that we mustn't miss. But if we look at those first two verses and verses 10 and 11 together, they talk about the plot of Jesus. And I'm just going to chase this for a minute, just a little little sermonette for Christianettes. But uh, just to kind of get something here, notice that the, it's the Passover time, and it's the time of the Passover feast. And the Passover feast included Passover plus the feast that followed, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it would go, go on for about a week. And you notice that the religious authorities were plotting to kill Jesus. Now, they've been plotting to kill Jesus since chapter 3, so that's not really big news. I mean, for, that was about a year and a half ago for us, but, but, uh, but, uh, but they've been plotting since chapter 3 to kill Jesus. And they're plotting to kill Jesus because they want to know his authority. What gives him the authority, the audacity to stand before them and say that he can forgive sins? To say that he's the Lord of the Sabbath? To say that people ought to, to sell all that they have and follow him? To, to, to say that people ought to trust him just like they would trust God? Where's he get off on this? What gives him the authority to do that? And of course, Jesus claimed to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, to take all of their authority away from them. And thus, they were angry with him and they plotted to kill him. But notice that they didn't want to kill him during the time of the feast. But when was Jesus killed? During the time of the feast. They didn't want to kill Jesus during the time of the feast because the city of Jerusalem swelled from about 50,000 people to about 250,000 people during the time of the feast, during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread because everyone came into Jerusalem for these times. They didn't want to do it then because they knew that Jesus had favor with the people and they were afraid that if they killed him then, the people would riot. But isn't it interesting that even though they didn't want to kill Jesus then, they did. Why? Because that's when God wanted Jesus to be crucified. You see, the how Jesus would be crucified had already been established. Psalm 22 speaks of crucifixion. Jesus had already said that he was going to be lifted up, implying that he would be crucified. The how was already set. It was only the when, but God had the when. God wanted his son crucified. He's the one who crushed him. It was his will. He ordained it. He decreed it. He worked through wicked men, but it wasn't the wicked men who had control of the situation. It was God himself. God wanted Jesus crucified during the time of the Passover because he was the Lamb of God. He was the substitute. Just as that Passover lamb would be slain to remind them of the time when they were in Egypt and the angel of death passed over them, at least over the ones who lived in the blood of the lamb, who lived under the blood of that lamb who had been, which had been sprinkled on the doorposts. That those who were in Jesus and under his blood 
would be safe. So God wanted to then, I just tell you that because you need to understand, we need to realize that everything is according to God's timing. That, 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 that he has ordained the what and the when that we don't need to be worried about and afraid. And just tuck that away for like Tuesday. You just, sometime, I bet this week, you're going to say, I wish this weren't happening now. Oh, I'll trust. It's God's timing. He's got that together. But, but we're really, the meat here really is verses 3 through 8. This wonderful, this wonderful story, this wonderful incident in the life of Jesus. It, it happens in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It happens in Bethany at the home of a guy named Simon the leper. Now, that probably doesn't sound very good to you. I mean, you probably wouldn't want to say, I'm going to Simon the leper's house. Um, but, but that was probably, for him, something of great affection. Because obviously he didn't presently have leprosy, because if he did, he couldn't invite people over. So it's likely that this Simon who knew Jesus had been healed of leprosy by Jesus. And so it's at Simon the leper's house in Bethany. And John, when he records this story in John chapter 12, tells us that um, uh, essentially there are friends there with Jesus, his disciples. It's a dinner party in Jesus' honor. So his disciples are there. And Lazarus is there, which is pretty cool because Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. Uh, it makes for a wonderful dinner conversation, I suppose. Uh, and so there was Lazarus there and the guy who raised him, Jesus. And, this, and, and John tells us that the woman who came in was Mary of Mary and Martha fame. And so Mary comes in, this woman comes in, and they're reclining at the table amongst friends. And she has this alabaster jar, it's called, filled with nard. Now, that doesn't sound good to us. But nard was a, a very, very expensive perfume. In fact, John tells us that it was worth a year's wage worth a year's salary, $20,000, $30,000, This was an expensive pint of perfume. And it was in an alabaster jar, and the jar was probably shaped where it had a, a, a wide uh, sort of a base to it for the liquid to be in. But then the way they would construct the bottle would be to come up and then seal it with a long, skinny neck. And so to get to it, you'd have to break off the neck of it. And it was so valuable, obviously, that it would be very well protected. This woman comes in, this Mary, no doubt, comes in and sees Jesus reclining at the table. She takes something worth tens of thousands of dollars. And she breaks the neck of it and she pours it on the head of Jesus. Now, the friends of Jesus who are around, the disciples of Jesus who are around him are indignant about this, and they rebuke her. They say, how could you do this? Why would you waste $30,000 worth of perfume on this one situation? Now, it wouldn't be uncommon if somebody were your dinner guest to take some perfume and put it on their head and put it on their feet. Uh, hygiene being what it was then. They didn't bathe and take showers like we do all the time. And so, and they walked around and, and their feet got dirty and I'm sure they got a little smelly. And so it was, it was not uncommon to do that kind of thing. What was uncommon was to use the really good stuff. Usually they would use the oil that was about the value of right guard or, um, sure, that's what I used. I'm sure you want to know that. But, uh, uh, 
I know, but, um, uh, you know, something like that. But, but not the $30,000 stuff. And how could you waste it? Because there's poor people. We could have taken this nard and we could have sold it for twenty or $30,000. And we could have, look what we could have done with it in the context of the poor. They're so indignant that, that, that the word in Greek to describe this is, is the English word snort. And, and it's the sound that it was making that they were so angry at her for doing this that it was like a bunch of bulls on a cold day snorting, if you can see that and hear that sound, or pigs in a pen. Listen to that sound. That's how angry, how indignant they were. They rebuked her. But Jesus comes to her defense. And he says, don't rebuke her. Don't say those things about her. What she has done is a beautiful thing. Taking something worth thousands and thousands of dollars and using it to perfume the body of Jesus. So, what's the big deal? What's the message here? What are we supposed to get out of this? Well, first, it isn't that we need to neglect the poor. I mean, Jesus said to them when they were complaining that this could have been sold and used to help the poor. Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. Now, by that, he wasn't, he wasn't saying, neglect the poor, don't worry about the poor. Jesus loved the poor. Jesus was very much one who helped the poor and urged others to do the very same. He was very, very obviously perfectly compassionate. In fact, and you don't need to turn to this, but in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, Moses writes this. He says, there will always be poor people in the land, just like Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. Moses said, you'll always have poor people. They'll always be in the land. And here's Moses' instruction to them. He says, therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. That is to say, take care of the poor. Jesus obeyed that. Jesus believed that. Jesus lived that. And so when he said, the poor you will have with you always, he wasn't saying, neglect the poor. I don't care about the poor. In fact, he could have had a little bit of satire in his voice. As if to say, you know, the poor were here yesterday and you guys weren't so concerned about them. So what's the big deal today? In fact, in John's account of this, he tells us it's Judas who is most upset. And John gives us a little parenthetical expression by saying, Judas was a thief. And you get the impression that Judas, who held the money bags for the disciples, was hoping to sell this nard, get a lot of money for it, put it in the bag, and take a cut. So Jesus saw right through that hypocrisy. So he said, don't even go there with me about the poor. That's not the issue here. There's something else that's of issue here. It's, it's this woman's heart. It's her uncalculating devotion and love to me. Because, you see, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. Now, did Mary get it? Did she know that? Did she know that he would die a criminal's death and therefore not be eligible for, for anointing of his body? Did she know that? Did she understand that? Well, you know, she could have. Mary listened really, really well to Jesus. She was the one that Jesus would compliment because of how she would listen and be attentive to his word. Maybe, maybe she did. Maybe she picked up on it. Maybe she understood that. Maybe not. The point is that her heart was such. And Jesus saw this as a beautiful thing. 
She didn't sit and calculate the cost. She didn't think about the risk. She didn't think about what she was sacrificing. She didn't think about her, her inheritance or her retirement or her future. She just knew that there was Jesus and she had this and it would be a great and beautiful expression of her devotion and her love for her and it wasn't wasted on him. In fact, wouldn't it even be at least close to blasphemy to say that anything would be wasted on Jesus just because it was valuable just because it was $20,000 worth? Could anything be wasted on Jesus? Oh, it was beautiful to him. And it was beautiful to him because it was complete. It was wholehearted. He said she gave all she could. Doesn't that remind you of another little incident? We, we kind of skipped it, actually, as we went through the as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. I, I used it in one of the offering times. It, it was about that widow woman. Remember her? We just gave two little coins. In the old language, it was two little mites. That's how it was described. In the temple area, there were 13 receptacles for offerings. And they were shaped in the shape of a trumpet. And they were made out of brass. Now, during the time of the Passover, people would come to give offerings. And when they would come and give offerings... Uh, they would put them in these brass, trumpet-shaped receptacles. Now, since they weren't refined as we and had offering envelopes, ah, we don't have that, do we? Uh, checks, paper, money, they had coins. And, of course, the weightier the coin, the heavier the coin, the more valuable the coin was. The weightier the coin, the heavier the coin, the more noise it made going into the trumpets. And so you could go into the temple area and listen for the trumpets. And in your giving, if you gave a lot and there was heavy coins, you could stick them in the receptacles and they would make a great noise for all to hear. So when this woman came, this widow woman, and she put her two little coins in there, nobody would have heard it unless someone could hear, hear noise coming from a person's heart. Jesus could. He heard it. Nobody else did. He heard her heart. He heard what was really there. And he said, this woman has given more than anybody else. But of course she didn't. She didn't give more than anybody else in our way of accounting. But in divine accounting, she gave more than everyone else. Why? Because she gave all she had. And now this woman, while she gave a lot, tens of thousands of dollars worth of perfume, while she gave a lot, it was complete. She did all she could. Because isn't that what Jesus calls us to anyway? All of it. There's an expression athletes use. After a game where they've expended all their effort, a football player might say something like, I left it all out on the field. Or a basketball player, I left it all out on the court. And by that they mean that all of their effort was expended. There was nothing left over to take from that. And you see, that's what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to leave it all with him. He calls us to leave it all in him. Nothing anywhere else. All of our life, all of our effort, all of our thoughts, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, everything in him. He calls us to follow him exclusively, 
that's why I could say, for instance, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, then he called, Jesus called the crowds to him, along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, I want you to leave it all with me. I want you to leave it all in me. I want you to deny all this other stuff. I want you to leave all that behind. And I want you to come. I want you to leave it all with me. That's why I could say, as Matthew has it, in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 37, Matthew says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He says, that, he says you've got to leave it all with me. It's got to be complete. You're coming to me. It's got to be complete. That's why when this rich young man came to Jesus, you remember, he says to Jesus, how, must, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, obey the commands. And he said, I've done that. Jesus knew he hadn't, not really from the heart. And so he says, all right, sell all that you have, give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, the difference between this woman and this rich young man was that you get the impression that her response to Jesus was uncalculating. It was a holy devotion. That it was so rational for her, so reasonable for her to say, I've got this perfume to anoint the body of Jesus. If somebody would have said, it's worth $20,000, she'd said, cool. I wish it was worth $80,000. But with this rich young man, I bet you could almost see the calculation going on in his mind. Following Jesus, my stuff. Following Jesus, my stuff. Following Jesus, he took his stuff. He valued that more than Christ. If you had said to this woman, Jesus or your stuff, she'd say, with a capital, right? Stuff! Stuff isn't important. This is Jesus. Who, what is more valuable than him? What do I have? It isn't his. What do I have that isn't devoted to him? What, did I, what do I have that shouldn't be poured out upon him, left in him, left with him? That was, that was her, I must say, that as I read this over and over again this week, I had a great sense of envy for this woman's heart. I think a good sense of envy. envy. I didn't want her perfume her heart. I want to be like that. I want my calculations in following Christ to be such that it's reasonable to me to leave all behind and follow him. I, I, I want to be uncalculating in my devotion to him, in my following him. You see, the world thinks it's a great waste when a medical doctor gives up his practice in the city and moves to an obscure country to heal and to help out of the love for Christ. The world thinks it's a huge waste for a person with a brilliant mind to leave the study of physics and study theology so that he can open the mysteries of the gospel to people. They think it's a waste when we do that out of love for Christ. The world thinks it's a great waste when a person who's climbing the corporate ladder 
and, and a part of the corporate elite risks everything for the sake of honesty and integrity and justice, for the sake of Christ. The world thinks it's a great waste for wealthy people to give up their wealth so the churches can be built, so the missionaries can be sent, so the people can be helped out of love for Christ. The world thinks it's a waste when people like you and me spend Sunday mornings in worship and not at the stadium or on the golf course or in bed. The world thinks it's a waste when we spend our leisure time preparing Sunday school lessons or hanging out with junior and senior high kids or or working with our kids on Wednesday night at blast or taking a meal to somebody in in need or or, or giving 10% or more of our income away. I think that's such a great waste. They think it's a waste for us to risk friendship or family just to tell people about Christ. They think it's a waste if we sit with a young woman contemplating abortion. They think it's a waste when we do these things out of love for Christ. They think we're crazy. But we're no different. It's not a waste. What is more valuable than devotion and honor and reverence to Christ? Even as I sat envying this woman this week and desiring that kind of heart, I had to ask the question, how do you get that kind of heart? Where does that come from? That kind of devotion, that kind of love. Because as I began to look at my own love for Christ, the guilt just heaped up on me. And I realized, as if I continue to look into my own life, how can I get out from under the weight of this guilt? Yes, I can confess my sin, but still... I examine my own heart. How does my own love for Christ grow? How can it grow? And then I realized I need to take my eyes off my love for Christ and put it on his love for me. Because this, you see, is how it works. This is love. Not that we love him, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because, you see, Our love for Christ and his love for us is different in this respect. Christ's love for us is an unconditional love. That is to say, thankfully, fortunately, it's not conditioned on me being lovable. Christ's love for us is an unconditional love. It's not conditioned on me being lovable. It's conditioned on his inherent lovingness. Christ is inherently loving. And so he can even love the likes of you and me. Uh, We heard some scripture out of Romans chapter 5 while we were singing that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was when we were his enemies, when we were against him, when we would have spit in his face, as Martin Luther said, that Christ died for us. His love for us is unconditional. It's not conditioned on who we are, but our love for him is conditional on who he is because he's perfectly lovable. In fact, not to love Jesus is immoral. It's unjust. It's sin. In fact, the song, To to Know Me is to Love Me, is really written about Jesus and Jesus alone because to know him really is to love me. 
I mean, to know me, well, ask the people who know me. Um, it isn't necessarily to love me. To know me is to be aggravated by me. To, be, to know me is to be frustrated by me. Uh, I won't go on. But to know Christ is to love him because he's perfectly lovable. And so the way that we grow in our affection for him is to get to know him, to think of him, to meditate upon him. For instance, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and chapter 5 this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14. This is a passage where Paul is trying to explain to the church in Corinth why he and his associates have sacrificed all that they've sacrificed to minister to them out of love for Christ. He writes this. He says, for Christ's love compels us, constrains us, controls us. And this isn't the love that they have for Christ, though that's coming. This is the love that Christ has for them. He says, the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for us, compels us. That's why we're here. It's because Christ has so loved us. Notice what he says. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He's saying, listen, the effect of the love of Christ, which I know because of his death for me, is what compels me to follow him even here. Because, you see, when we learn of the love of Christ for us, it melts our hearts. It works in us. Devotion. It works in us. Reverence. It works in us. Love. Paul's saying, I know the love of Christ. My heart has now been melted. And for Christ's sake, for his sake, now out of love for him, I'm here. Notice Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 begins by saying therefore. Now that's a huge therefore. Because that therefore says everything that I've said in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans is relevant here. Because in chapters 1 through 11, we learn about how we were saved by the work of Christ. The thorough treatment on how we were saved by the work of Christ. So he says, now because of all that, he says, I, he's now going to urge us to do something. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. He says, don't let God's mercy out of your mind. Because I'm going to ask you to do something here that's radical. But I can only ask you to do that which is radical. If you understand the mercy of God, if you get it, if you see that his love for you is unconditional, that you see that, that he loved you even when you hated him, that you see he died for you even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were his enemy, when you were ungodly, when you were against him. He did all of that. Now, understanding the mercy that God's has for you, God has for you, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and blameless. Holy and pleasing, I'm sorry. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I want you to worship him. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to give your all, your whole person, everything about you as a living sacrifice. I want you to turn away from everything else, and I want you to follow Christ exclusively. And you say, but isn't that a little radical? How about three hours a day? How about half my thinking? 
How about Sundays? I'll throw in the afternoon. He says, no. In view of the mercy that God has had upon you, doesn't that work in you something? Doesn't that work in you love for him? Is it unreasonable for God to say, I've saved you graciously. Now, follow me completely. Anything less would be unreasonable. We don't need to make that calculation. It's reasonable in view of God's mercy. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Paul writes this, Since we have these promises, now these promises are the great promises of God to save us and that we might belong to him, be reconciled to him. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness. Isn't that a lot? How can, how can you say that, Paul? How can you call us to that? He says, out of reverence for God. Where's that reverence for God come from? It comes from knowing these precious and great promises in view of God's mercy out of love for him. If you want to have an uncalculating love for Christ that enables you to lay before him, pour upon him, leave with him everything. It happens by taking your eyes off your own love or lack thereof for him and put it on his love for you. That's why this is so important. That night that Jesus was with his disciples, you remember the scripture said that he was about to show them the full extent of his love. So he met with his disciples that very night. And when he did, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, This is my, my body, which is given for you. And then he also took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, He gave this cup to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what happens when we remember this? What happens when we think upon this? Or what's to happen when we think upon this? As we think upon the very love that God has for us in Christ. We begin to contemplate that he does, in fact, love us with this wonderful love that isn't conditioned on my being lovable. He simply poured his love out, gave himself for me to save me. Just think upon that. Because you see what happens when we think upon that. And something happens. Something happens in the very depths of our being and we begin to think, he has so loved us, it melts our hearts. And our reverence for him grows. Our devotion for him increases. And as we understand more and more the love that he has for us, the less calculating 
our following becomes. Because it simply gets increasingly reasonable to do everything he says, to think thoughts that are pleasing to him, to follow him completely. So that if we had $30,000 worth of perfume and he was ready to be buried, we would think nothing of breaking its head and pouring it on his. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even as we gaze upon this table, I pray that you would deeply work in us an understanding, an appreciation, a heartfelt knowledge of the love of Christ. I pray you not let this moment escape us, but I pray that you would work that in us, that we would take our eyes off us and put it upon him. And I pray as we do that, God, that you would enable us to see and to know that which is completely unknowable, to know the height and depth, breadth and width of the love of God for us that is in Christ Jesus. And I pray as that love grows in us, a knowledge of the love of Christ grows in us, that, Father, that our love for you would expand as well, our reverence for you, our devotion for you, so that the only thing that satisfies is pleasing you. That nothing would be too costly, nothing would be too risky, nothing would be too sacrificial, but that we would find our joy in generously, lavishly following you. So, Father, I pray that you would set apart these elements as bread and this juice even now to help us. You've given to us this sacrament, Jesus, I pray. That you would meet us here, that you would use it in a way that enables our faith in you, our love for you to grow. And that that would be evidenced in the course of our lives, I pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. You need to see that. Because if you don't see that, you won't understand his love for you that it was ill-deserving, that you are undeserving. That you not only see yourself as a sinner in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy, but you see his sovereign mercy. You see his great grace that comes to you in Jesus Christ. And that he is the one who has done everything to save you, and you've done nothing. But that's the most significant thing that could ever be true. And thus, it's your hope and desire now to be like that woman. To be devoted to him, to have great love for him. That your love for him, your devotion for him, your reverence for him is uncalculating. And that you follow him. Let me invite those in these two sections down to come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And let resonate in your head, he really does love me. Please come.
Pray with me, Father in heaven. It's a great blessing to be so loved by you. The great blessing of being loved by you is to receive the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to you all through Christ. But yet a great blessing of being loved by you is then to love you. And so I pray that we would be people who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please, we pray, work that in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that elders are available to pray, uh, so please take advantage of that. Also, the response to the benediction as it is on these communion Sundays is to sing together that great praise, the doxology. So please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together, let us sing.